You are listening to Love, Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Brunswick, Maine. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Here are some highlights from this week's program. Very glad that we were there, but it really gave us a chance to think about what we needed, what we wanted to what we wanted to show the the rest of the world was possible. I started to realize that the busier I got, the more my my fingers and my hands would crack and peel and that it was really from the chemicals that are used to to make textiles. This is Dr. Lisa Belisle, and you are listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 218. Indoor ecosystems at home and at school, airing for the first time on Sunday, November 22nd, 2015. Although we think of the term ecosystem as being related to the greater Earth, we are actually part of multiple ecosystems. These ecosystems exist wherever we work, live, or learn. Today, we speak with Jenny Rowe, head of school at the Friends School of Portland, and Jan Robinson, the owner of Eco Home Studio, about the work they are doing to improve our indoor ecosystems. Thank you for joining us. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Apothecary by Design. There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines prepared by experienced professionals with a focus on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled. You need attention, advice, and individual care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way that it's meant to be. Experience chef and owner Harding Lee Smith's newest hit restaurant, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room, Maine seafood at its finest. Joining sister restaurants, The Front Room, The Grill Room, and The Corner Room, this newly renovated two-story restaurant at 86 Commercial Street on Custom House Wharf overlooks scenic Portland Harbor. Watch lobstermen bring in the daily catch as you enjoy baked stuffed lobster, raw bar, and wood-fired flatbreads. For more information, visit theroomsportland.com. As a longtime resident of uh, Greater Portland, it's been exciting for me to see how the Friends School of Portland has evolved over the past several years. Today I have with me Jenny Rowe, who has been the head of school of the Friends School of Portland since 2012. A practicing Quaker, Jenny firmly believes that we all have something to teach and something to learn. Jenny and her husband live on Munjoy Hill in Portland. Thanks so much for coming in and talking with me today. Thank you. It's great to be here. So this is an interesting, we've cut your bio down by quite a lot. What it doesn't reflect is the fact that before you came to this area, mm-hmm. you've been in a lot of different places pursuing um, work in the educational field. Yeah, that's right. I started teaching um, back in the early 80s um, in Putney, Vermont, and I've been in a lot of schools in New England, and and then life took me to Central America, to Guatemala for part of a year, and then and then we made our home in Monteverde, Costa Rica for about 10 years, and um, that's where my kids went to school, and that was the first experience I had being head of school of a Quaker school. Your children are 26 and 24? Good, yes. And now what you've told me is one is in the Netherlands and one is at NYU, just started law school. Right. What type of um, influence did their time um, at part of a in part of a Quaker school, mm-hmm. Quaker educational system. What kind of an influence did that have on their growing up? Um, 
it's kind of an interesting mix because uh, Monteverde, Costa Rica is a very tiny community up on the top of a mountain um, just below a, a beautiful cloud forest. And um, when we were there, things were still pretty small. It's a very um, attractive place for people who are interested in in birds and, and travel. Um, when we were there, it was quite a bit smaller. And so um, the school itself was... 90 children and the kids my kids had about 10 to 15 people in their class and they knew them extremely well after a number of years the same the same kids um and so they had both the experience of being in a in a very tight-knit very small community um but also the experience of traveling back and forth from new hampshire for that for, for us at that time um and they've really grown to love to travel. My son spent a year in Vietnam. My daughter has worked um, in Mexico and Costa Rica and Cameroon. And so they're traveling all the time. I think they they really think of themselves as, as citizens of the world. Isn't that one of the things that you're hoping to do with the Friends School of Portland is really um, beyond just educating young children to do what one does once you've mm-hmm. gotten out of middle school and elementary school, but to be a citizen of the world. Yeah, I think that we, I think we all need to do that. Um, in the, in, in 2015, we're really all part of something so much bigger than, than our own communities, and our communities really need to extend beyond, beyond our, our homes and our schools. It's a, it's a, you don't always know what that's going to look like or how it's how it's going to look, and I think people have to feel very settled and um, and care and care for and understand where they live when they're young. Really, their circles need to be quite small. So that starts in your family, and then maybe your first steps into elementary school and feeling that you're um, a part of a of a you know of more than just your classroom, and then to continue out for, outward from there. So tell me how that intersects with um, with being a Quaker mm-hmm. and with uh, the Quaker philosophy. Mm. Well, I think that most of of where you can start um, when you're thinking about Quaker practice is to understand that everybody has the kind of the spark of the divine in them. Some Quakers say there's that of God in everybody. And so if you take that and you just expand out with that, what it means is that you understand that people are equal. You understand that um, it takes a lot of people in a community to, um, to accomplish what needs to be done. Um, you, you start by assuming that everybody is is honest and um, is willing to work hard to make the world a better place. So that's what we, you know, that's what we can can help kids to understand. It's really uh, adults needing to learn how to do that together, and then modeling that for kids. And you can really you can create quite a nice quite a nice place um, where kids have a chance to practice this and take it with them as they go on to their next piece of life. We interviewed Billy Shore, who is the head of Share Our Strength for um, 
I guess it's national, international, but it's about feeding children. Hmm. And he sent to me a uh, several books that were actually written by an educator who has a background as a Quaker. Mm-hmm. And I, um, his first name, I believe, is Parker. Yeah, Parker Palmer. And I was really struck by the idea that there wasn't some external something that was being imposed upon the notion of what one does. Mm-hmm. It, it really was, it is more about uh, being quiet enough to listen to your still small voice mm. and know what it is that resonates more with you. Right. So how does that come through in the work that you do at the Friends School? Well, we definitely need to set aside time for reflection for people. Um, We begin every morning just with a faculty. We just sit together um, in our meeting room for for five minutes in in silence, and then we kind of get together, think about what the day and the week are going to look like ahead, and then go out from there. So starting with a real quiet focused place so that we are ready to meet the the challenges of the day and for the for the students and for the faculty we we have um meeting for worship it's a it's a silent meeting on on um monday afternoons we sit together for about 20 or 25 minutes um sometimes we'll reflect on a question that somebody's asked and if somebody's moved to say something into the silence, they're welcome to do that. Sometimes it's just a lot of um, kind of soft fidgets going on when you're sitting in a group of, of uh, in a room with a bunch of kids, which is also fine. Um, and many teachers use silence in their classrooms just to get started or if things need to come back to... Um, p- people need to be drawn back to attention often people will ask for just let's just have a little minute of silence before we go on so I think kids grow to be pretty comfortable in quiet it's also been important for you to create not only an educational environment and a social environment for the children but truly create um, sort of an ecosystem Mm. of peace and and your Initially, you your school was located on Mackworth Island, right. um, which I found very interesting because of its history, the history of Mackworth Island right. as being a place where deaf children were educated and there being some controversy there about how they were treated. Right. Um, what was that like when you were located there? You know, it um, that happened so early. This, this was about 10 years ago, and I think the school had... A, strong impulse to begin and I think it was only fairly at the last minute that they could actually find a a site um, to to use as the school and um, at the beginning of the school I understand that there was quite a bit more back and forth between um, the students at the Governor Baxter School for the Deaf and and the Friends School there were some classes on signing there were people on the island who could um who could come and teach classes at our school, and then we opened up our PE classes often to to the children from the school from the deaf. And I th- I think that was a really wonderful start. When I came in, the population had dropped already so much at the school for the deaf that um, the interpreters even weren't on hand to continue that um, t- to continue that relationship. But we we did have PE with our our kindergarten class shared PE with some of those children. Um, the site itself was just a great place for 
ch- children to be outside and roaming the island and learning about the tides and finding their special places, you know, special beaches and special trees. And that was really one of the pieces that we realized we needed to bring with us when our lease expired on Mackworth. We knew that um, that having that connection with nature that meant so much to kids and their families was something that we really had to we had to move forth with. And so that's what prompted us to buy 21 acres of a really beautiful forest in Cumberland right along Route 1 and then begin designing a building around that. It's an interesting, um, it's almost an oxymoron to say that you have a, a beautiful site right along Route 1. It's true. <laughs> but I've noticed over time in watching your school be built that it is your school is it is sort of nestled back in the trees mm-hmm. and there is actually a corridor that extends from Falmouth to Yarmouth where it's there's still a lot of nature that exists. There is there are patches of patches of wood and you can you know that there are neighborhoods that you know that that sneak up behind and and things off to the side but the the school itself is located off of Route One, but um, but close enough to Route One that the rest of the of the forest is still, still there's no access road that cuts through it. It's it's a nice block of forest trails, different types of wetland, and um, so it's a real area of exploration. And and you know, kids are starting to do studies in the forest there behind the school. It's also important to you not only to be um, situated within a natural space, but also create a space within your building right. that was conducive to healthy living and learning. That's right. So the <clears throat> the building itself is really a special place. Uh, we came from a you know a tried and true cinder block building on Mackworth that was really hard to keep warm and. Um, um, we're very glad that we were there, but it really gave us a chance to think about what we needed, and what we wanted to, what we wanted to show the the rest of the world was possible. Um, we had a terrific building committee, architects and builder, and really together we we worked to design first, you know, a, a school that would be great, great place for kids to learn. Um, we, but as the more we thought about it, um, and the more we learned about uh, passive house design, um, and having people in our community who were experienced in that um, in that world, we we realized we could design a building that would allow us to kind of model what we are the stewardship that we want to have for the for the earth, and. Um, it's it's been a really fantastic process. It was a fantastic process to go through, and the school itself is net zero. It has incredibly great insulation and light and space um, and warmth, and and actually cool. When this when school year started, it was quite hot. Some clo- some schools were closed because of heat, even in Maine. Um, and we've just we found it a really comfortable place to be, and a, it's a simple building. It cost a little bit more to do it this way but knowing that we could have knowing that what we were aiming for from the beginning you know really helped us to know uh, to know how to do this how many children and teachers do you have we have about 100 kids this year and we have about 25 faculty and staff about nine full-time people and a lot of people that come in to do 
um, smaller pieces. So when you were looking to build in Cumberland, how did that, um, how did you get information from students and parents and mm -hmm. teachers and community about what would best suit the needs of all? Um, that's a great question. We, we held some community meetings, we held some parent meetings at the very beginning too, because we could re really, we thought we could go in so many different directions. We looked at, at you know, empty lots in downtown Portland. We looked at, at schools that had been abandoned and, you know, could be renovated. Um, and there were, it wasn't, it was not necessarily something that was easy. There were some parents who felt like it was very, it was, we, we all would have liked to be closer to, to the, to Portland um, in order for things not to feel like they could become, we didn't want to become a kind of suburban country day school. Uh, we wanted people to be able to continue having, having um, projects that, that they could help with in, in Portland. But we, you know, we, in the end, we really were limited in what we could find. And so one of the th so parent getting together with parents to to talk about those decisions and also then helping helping they helped us to think about wh who is it that we are as a school what's important to us now that we are not at that point we were seven years old and what makes us who we are and then that 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 connection with the natural world really came through in the in the meetings that we had and then we invited larger community into meetings to talk about the early designs of the school and got some feedback there um, and got people excited to kind of join um, join with us to get the building built. So it did start out with a lot of, of, of meetings. <laughs> well, that is an interesting question, and that is, um, you know, if you look at the school as an organism, what is the identity of the organism? Because so many different, it's kind of like the... Um, the parable of the people touching the elephant and mm -hmm. the guy touches mm -hmm. the trunk and he mm -hmm. says the elephant looks like this and the guy touches the tail and he says the elephant looks like this. You have a lot of people right. touching the organism that is your school. That's right. So what did you, I know you have this connection with the natural world right. and the idea of stewardship. What would you yeah. consider to be the identity that is commonly accepted? Huh. <sighs> well, I think that students... I think students feel that school is a place that feels both c kind of comfortable like home, but challenging, and um, that allows them to try different things and to feel safe about that. So uh, I think students picture themselves being outdoors, even if it's just at recess, um, our littlest our preschoolers go out and kindergartners are out for an hour a day. It doesn't matter what the weather is on the coldest days. They're out <laughs> trudging around and finding things and making things. And so that I think that, that, uh, that that's how students often think of themselves when they come to school. They've just got a lot of freedom to, um, to explore even just on the edge of the swing sets. You know, there are some wonderful patches of partridge berry and, and ferns, and they're spending a lot of time um, creating little spaces in that, in that early forest. I think to, to other people, it's a, it's a place where, where Quaker values really are brought to life, and I think most of the people who come to the Friends School aren't Quakers and won't be Quakers, but they do talk about 
um, the values of simplicity and in pe- and peace and integrity, community equality, and then that stewardship piece. And it's really about figuring out um, how to take care of your community and how to take care of the world and putting your beliefs into practice. And so it's really a little bit about becoming an activist at, at your level. And if you see something that needs to be changed, having being encouraged to have a voice to do that. You're still called the Friends School of Portland. <laughs> and you've said that you have connections still with projects in Portland. What yeah. types of things are you doing within the greater community? Well, last week our third and fourth graders went and did some um, stenciling of storm drains in Portland. You've, you've seen the what this water f- flows into Casco Bay, so that's something that we've done um, each year. We've we've invited we've all, we've invited people from um, uh, refugee resettlement organizations to come and speak with our older older students um, in the last several years, and we've had some clothes clothing collection for. Well, teens at the teen shelter that was put together by two kindergarten two kindergartners, who collected socks and towels for the teens in the teen shelter earlier this year. Um, we've had some of our students go and 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 uh, read to people at retirement communities, and we've also been able to host parenting for peace events. Our spe- their speaker series that we've invited. Um, Educators in the area and parents are people of of all. You know, they don't need to be parents to come. But twice a year, we've in, we've either had an event at Hannaford Hall at USM or at the school itself to discuss issues that are of importance, all the way from um, gender identity to um, to the importance of of allowing kids to be part of nature to. Uh, um, un, you know, to what I can't think of anything else, but there, are, you know, many a, a range of of topics that are of interest to the larger group of people in this area. Having spent time in New Hampshire and Costa Rica, and I know mm-hmm. you've lived in other places, mm-hmm. what was the draw of Maine for you? <laughs> it was really the Friends School of Portland. Have I'd been at the Friends School of um, in Monteverde, and and uh, as I moved back to New Hampshire, I had realized that the school was being there was a Quaker school that was that was that was uh, being established and on an island in Maine. And I kind of kept my my ears open for that. It was there really were at this point we're the only friend school in northern New England. And so um, when I heard about the position being open, I I knew it was something that I wanted to find out more about. And it's really not that far from where I had been living, but it's it's lovely to be living in a city after many many years, and being part of a and, and Portland's just the right size for me. And I, I, in some ways, I feel like I'm I've come home again being at the Friends School. You and I have children in their twenties, mm-hmm. so we've both seen how things move along as parents mm-hmm. to from relative dependence to relative independence. Mm-hmm. It also affords us as individuals to look at our own lives and see where we've moved and mm-hmm. how we've evolved and how mm-hmm. we've developed. Mm-hmm. What have you noticed about your own development as a person? 
Well, I think that I continue to appreciate the people around me quite a bit. I, I, uh, I think I've realized that there's, there's such power in community and um, learning from, you know, paying attention to what students are offering, have to offer, including parents and, and especially just trusting and um, and really supporting the faculty to do their best work is pretty much what my what my life is about. I um, so that I have a, a great deal of appreciation for the people around me and kind of a kind of an extra large sense of responsibility to make things right for them. That's a very good answer. <laughs> I know that it was putting you on the spot a little bit. And, and it is sometimes, I think it is really hard to think about even on the spot. Like, you know, yes, as a person, I've evolved just as the students that I'm teaching, or in my case, the patients that I care for have evolved. But I think that's sort of the bottom line, isn't it? That we're all constantly in evolution, that hopefully none of us are ever in one place, mm-hmm. and that's where we're going to live mm-hmm. and die forever. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the great things about being at a school is that nothing stays, nothing changes, nothing stays the same. And there, 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 there are these core, core values that you hope to bring with you, but you can change traditions, you can change, and and, and just the addition of a you know, three new students or the loss of three graduating students, just it it's, it always means things are fresh, and they, in a small school that individuals can make such a difference. Jenny, how can people find out about the work that's being done at the Friends School? Well, if you go to the to the Friends School of Portland's website, you can find out about the building, you can find out about the staff, and you can also find out about admissions open houses, so you could come and take a look at the school on those days and um, see the teachers in their classrooms and you know, just get a sense for what things feel like. We've been speaking with Jenny Rowe, who is the head of school of the Friends School of Portland. She's been doing this since 2012. I really appreciate your coming in and talking to me today. I completely believe that, as you do, that we all have something to teach and something to learn. So I think I've learned a lot from you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Lisa. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Mary Libby of Remax by the Bay, whose 15 years of experience and unique perspective on the industry puts creativity and enjoyment into house hunting. Specializing in properties in Southern Maine, Mary will work with you to get to know your wants, desires, and dreams, and make sure that the home you move into is as close to perfect as it gets. And she'll make sure you have fun along the way. Because while moving is one of the more stressful events you'll encounter, finding the right home doesn't have to be. If you're looking to buy or sell a home in Southern Maine, be in touch with Mary and find out more about why when it comes to buying and selling real estate, a good time really can be had by all. Mary Libby of Remax by the Bay your connection to living right. Go to marylibby.com for more information. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Berlin City Honda, where the car buying experience is all about easy. After all, life is complicated enough, and buying a car shouldn't be. That's why the Berlin City Honda team goes the extra mile by pre-discounting all their vehicles and focus their efforts on being open, honest, and all about getting you on the road. In fact, Berlin City recently won the 2015 Women's Choice Award, a strong testimony to their ability to deliver a different kind of car buying experience, 
Berlin City Honda of Portland. Easy. It's how buying a car should be. Go to BerlinCityHondaME.com for more information. This next topic of conversation is one that I find very important and have been writing about as a doctor and actually dealing with as a, as a doctor as well for really my entire medical career. And that is the, um, the ecology of the inner home and how it impacts our health. My guest today is an individual who knows something about this both personally and professionally. This is Jan Robinson, who is the owner of Eco Home Studio. Jan has been in the interior design business for 25 years. Originally from South Berwick, she now lives in Gorham with her husband, and she has two grown children. Thanks so much for coming in today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm interested um, in your own personal story because I think that this dictated really the work that you're doing now with Eco Home. So tell me a little bit about that. It did. I've always had allergies. Um, As a child, I remember... Uh, having headaches, and I always had sinus infections and ear infections and all of that. But as I got older, then I developed asthma. Um, And mostly it was from environmental things, you know, hay fever and that kind of thing, trees, mold, all of that. But um, when I had, when I started building a home in Gorham 18 years ago, I started researching some of you know the products that you build your house with and what's in them and decided very quickly that that w- definitely would have some impact on my asthma and I really wanted to make an effort to um, have my house be as toxin-free as we could afford it to be. Um, so avoiding <clears throat> you know particle board, plywood, things that had formaldehyde in them, uh, having solid wood cabinetry, um, those kinds of things. We put radiant heat in our flooring so that it wasn't blowing the dust around. Um, those kinds of choices that really have an impact on, on my asthma. So that was sort of the beginning of my journey with finding out what's in all of those things that we bring into our home. In Maine, it's especially important because we spend so much time inside with the windows shut. Well, our homes are so tight, we have to super insulate our homes to save energy. And and especially new homes today are really, really tight. So all of those toxins just build up inside our homes and and we're, we're living with them, we're breathing them. You also had experience, um, working as a draper and working in the drapery field. Right. And this was an early sort of professional understanding that even the fabric that you were handling was causing I started my business as a drapery workroom and I started to realize that the busier I got, the more my, my fingers and my hands would crack and peel and that it was really from the chemicals that are used to, to make textiles. There's, it's a, I don't know what the math is, but it's it's a huge amount of chemicals that they use for the dyes and, and the processing, especially if you get into anything that's 100% cotton, which, you know, I've always been somebody who liked natural fibers. I always like to wear cotton, but the truth of the matter is cotton is one of the most toxic fibers there is and most um, devastating to our environment, um, even organic cotton. But a conventional cotton, they use so many pesticides and herbicides and fungicides and water just to grow it. And then once it's grown, the chemicals they use to process it are just unbelievable. So, you know, even if you see some natural cotton or all natural cotton product, 
I would avoid it. And organic cotton is better. It doesn't have all of those chemicals, but it still uses an awful lot of water to pro- to get it to grow. Um, so not the best um, fiber, really. But and that's just the beginning of the chemicals that are used to to make the textiles that we live with. It's the dyes. It's it's just chromium, uh, all of those kinds of things. So yeah. It's interesting as we're talking. I'm thinking about. <clears throat> this long background that we have here in Maine um, as factories, right. you know, as working in factories. You know, my ancestors worked there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm, I know lots of Mainers have similar stories, and, and some of the factories were actually related to the garment industry. Some of them were related to the shoe industry, mm-hmm. some were paper. Mm-hmm. But in each of these, there were processes that were actually damaging to the individuals who were dealing with them. Really bad. I, I grew up in, in South Berwick. We had a, a shoe factory. Um, and then in the next town over, there was a tannery, a leather tannery. And I remember walking to school every morning past this shoe factory and smelling the glues that they used to make the shoes. And thinking even at a really early age this can't be good this just can't be good and you know those people were in there they did have the windows open pretty much all year round the the workers did but I can't even imagine what some of those people were inhaling and and how it's affected or how it affected their health I mean they closed down I don't know probably in the 80s or late 70s I can't remember but um, all of those things that they inhaled and and had to work with day after day you got to wonder it's interesting because as a as you're talking and I'm thinking about your personal um, I guess genetic and health makeup you were more sensitive to what you were handling Mm. in the fabrics you Mm. were also more sensitive to what you were inhaling um, with your lungs but not everybody has those sensitivities so they might be exposing themselves to things that they don't even realize are harming them in the long term I agree, and I, I think um, I'm very tuned into it. I've always been somebody who um, really paid attention to what my body is telling me. And so, you know, when I say that I'm chemically sensitive, I kind of think everybody is, but some people just don't pay attention to it. Um, you know, for me, when I walk into, I don't want to get sued, but <laughs> some of these um home goods type stores not home goods the store but some you know, like a Walmart I guess sue me um, my nose and my eyes just burn just burn and a lot of it is the products that it well I know it's the products that they've got in there that they're just dumping by the container full into their stores we also don't quite realize that some of the scents that we use to mask mm. chemical so- uh, smells are actually themselves harmful yeah yeah you know especially with um you know women's products perfumes all of those kinds of things um and then you know the the products we use in our home febreze or or any of those the the things that you plug in those are actually harmful chemicals that you really shouldn't be using Uh, there's lots of other natural things that you can do you know boil some cinnamon in a pan you know on your stove or or I don't know, rub some lemon all over your counters. There's a lot of other things you can do if you really need to mask scents, but um, besides Lysol or any of those type of things. 
And yet this is something that we've been conditioned to expect. The reason that Febreze actually has a scent, my understanding, is that when they introduced a scent-free Febreze, which was used to get rid of odors, mm-hmm. people didn't think it was doing anything. Mm-hmm. So they said, we need a scent, and mm-hmm. we, we are actually now asking for this. Right, right. And baking soda does just as good a job. You know, it's like most people keep baking soda in the refrigerator to absorb some of the bad scents, and and it's at least much better than any of those things that you spray. And I mean, we're my theory is we're exposed to so many things that we don't even know about. Why not avoid the things that we do? And that's kind of been my approach with my store is just if I know something's in, if there's formaldehyde in a piece of furniture, I'm not going to buy it. Well, Jan, tell me about your store and your process. When someone comes to your store, it's called Eco Home. So they have right. some expectation that you're doing something that is good for the person, good for the environment. Um, how do people usually find you and what, what would be the reason for someone to decide to come into your store? Um, unfortunately, a lot of people find me by accident still, but um, people that have chemical sensitive um, history or asthma, a lot of a lot of the people that come in are coming in, they're worried about their children, maybe they have young kids, and the thought of having their child <coughs> laying on the sofa breathing formaldehyde or fire retardants um, is of concern to them. So, and I'm not, what I have in my store isn't 100% toxin-free, and I, that's the one thing I don't want people to think that it is completely toxin-free. It's, it's still there, but what I have in my store is as good as you can get. Um, my, my cushions and my sofas have no formaldehyde. The, there's, they use water-based adhesives, so there's no formaldehyde. A lot of the adhesives they use is where the formaldehyde is, um, and some of the plywoods that they use in constructing furniture. You know, Some of the furniture you buy in the big box stores are made from particle board, which is just soaked in formaldehyde. Um, so, you know, my biggest goal with, with my store is to at least start the conversation and start educating people that there is a lot of harmful chemicals in the things that we bring in our home, the fabrics. And fabrics are still difficult to find um, that are healthier. Um, there, there are certain standards. There, there are beginning to be organizations that monitor and test fabrics. Um, and so I tell people to just look for third-party um, companies that rate these, like the Ecotex standards uh, is one of them that I can think of. And I have a line of fabrics that have been run through those. And basically what they do uh, is test them for some of the worst, most noxious chemicals and make sure that those aren't in them. Doesn't mean they're chemical free, but they at least there's no formaldehyde in the fabrics or um, some of them have uh, chromium in them. Uh, so it, they test for those worst chemicals. Um, so my biggest goal with the, the store, like I said, is to educate people and start the conversation. So do you carry a full range of furniture and draperies and anything that one would use to actually to design the inside of a home? I do. I do. I have furniture. I have fabrics. I have a, cust- a local custom workroom that will do any kind of sewing. Um, my furniture is all made in the United States. Uh, I have... Um, most everything I have is made in the United States. I have a lot of local products. I'm actually kind of working right now. I haven't nailed the deal yet, but with another local um, craftsperson who makes lots of really wonderful products for the home to decorate your home with. Uh, and to me, that 
is eco-friendly and that you're supporting our local economy and local artisans. But she also uses um, fabrics that are made in the U.S. and have a lot of recycled content in them. I have lamps that are made out of uh, recycled glass. I have some glassware made out of recycled glass. Um, soy candles, which burn clean, they're, and they're made actually made here in Maine um, with cotton wicks and no fragrance or light fragrance um, from essential oils. So there's a lot of different choices you can make if you like to do um, things like burn candles, which a lot of people do, which is another big thing. There's the candles that you buy at your big box stores are, are made from a petroleum-based product. So you're burning all kinds of chemicals into your home. And it's just as bad as, as the Lysol or any of the other types of things that we do to scent our homes. It's You're really not doing yourself any favor by burning those so <clears throat> you started your store uh, four years ago mm -hmm. and your background is not only in interior design but you also have a business degree yes so you're kind of bringing together the art and the business of all of this yes have you found that the economic environment is more favorable um, for the work that you're doing these days it is yeah it, um it was a little bit difficult when I first started. Uh, 2012 was really sort of the end of the Great Recession, but um, each year I, I'm seeing people, especially this year, people are really getting into you know, remodeling and renovating, and I'm seeing a lot more building happening, and yeah, it's been, it's been good. So. Um, you also, in your own home, have done some work with solar panels mm -hmm. and other things that are sort of looking at the environment in a, in a bigger way. Yes. I'm very fortunate. My husband has a plumbing and heating business, so <laughs> um, we have added solar panels that heat our hot water, uh, which is really great. In the summer, we don't have to run our furnace at all for hot water for our 20-somethings that take 45-minute showers. Um, and we have, um, we installed some heat pumps, uh, mini splits. We have two in our house now, uh, one on the first floor and one in the basement in my son's man cave. Um, and, you know, the benefit of that has been huge because we always had to run a dehumidifier in the basement to keep it from smelling musty because mold is another one of my big triggers. And those consume a lot of energy. And with the mini split running, we hadn't, didn't have to run it at all and barely saw a blip on our electric bill. So those are very, very efficient. And in the mornings, these, like this morning, it was very cold when I came down for my breakfast and turned on my little mini split and it heats the first floor. I don't have to run the furnace. So yeah, we've really made an effort to have a energy efficient home um, as well as, you know, the products that we brought in not have toxic products. So I'm sure that I should know this, but what is a mini split? They're not the most attractive thing. Aesthetically, when my husband brought it in, I said, oh, no, that does not please the designer. But um, they are installed on a, an outside wall, and they run off electricity, and they provide both heating and air, co air conditioning, and very, very efficiently. Um, so it's there. I think my husband's installing them over and over and over right now. Everybody wants them. Why are they called mini splits? I have no idea. 
Well, we'll have to get your husband on the show so he can explain this further for us. But they're efficient, and that's very kind of the efficient. point. Very efficient. So, you know, when I look at being eco-friendly, I look at a lot of different things. Um, I, I think it's great to, to be as energy efficient as you can, but I also think it's great to um, work toward, toward uh, using it, recycling and reusing and 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 keeping the toxins out of our house. There's just so many facets of, of living sustainably that I think are important. Your children are now 22 and 25. Mm-hmm. So they've been with you throughout this entire interior design um, business mm-hmm. that you've been working on. What types of lessons do you think they've come away with? Um, well, they used to call me the Nazi recycler, but um, so they're pretty good at recycling, you know, cans or whatever um, products in the house. Um, my son actually works for my husband. He's the air conditioning specialist. He's kind of the guy that installs those mini splits. So. You know, for him, he's he's very knowledgeable about energy efficiency, um, and um, I think both of my kids are very eco-conscious. And my daughter just bought her first house, and at 22 years old, I think is pretty amazing. But you know, they I think she's making very thoughtful choices as far as what she's doing with her own home now. Are you finding that when you go out into the community to talk about things like this, that people are more receptive than they once were? Much more so than I expected, actually. That's, that's been one of the most surprising things with this business. Uh, when I first started this journey and, and shopping for the products that I wanted to bring into my store, and I would talk to salespeople and um, for the vendors that I buy from, and they, and they would say things like, people don't care about whether it's eco-friendly or not. And I, I would reply, well, they do in Maine. You know, I think people in Maine really appreciate the beautiful environment that we live in um, and want to keep it as beautiful as it is. Um, and like you said, we do spend a lot of time indoors in the winter. So, you know, we want to be able to have good air to breathe. Uh, so, yeah, I've been very surprised at how receptive people are to... Um, making smarter choices. Is it also getting more um, cost-effective to buy eco-friendly and body-friendly products? Most definitely. I, I think there's a lot more available now. I, I Just what I'm seeing in the furniture industry, um, I think most U.S.-made furniture now is moving toward removing the formaldehyde from any of the products that it, they use to construct the furniture with. Um, a lot more of them are offering textiles that are made out of recycled products. Um, and a lot more of them, if you go on their websites, any of the big retail or manufacturers, um, they are paying more attention to how they handle sustainability within their manufacturing plants and their recycling, repurposing, being more efficient with their heat. A lot of them are s- installing solar heat and um, so I think there's a lot more products available. And there's also, I think, what you're going to find is probably in another four or five years, you're going to start seeing the manufacturers um, labeling, as we do with our foods, what's in the furniture, because there's a huge push in Washington to do so. And I think a lot of the manufacturers are going to probably <coughs> jump the gun before they're forced to. Um, so. 
We've been talking about some of the shorter term health impacts like asthma and allergies. Um, we also know that there are longer term potentially mm. um, impacts, reproductive issues. Mm. Um, you mentioned people wanting to have healthy furniture for their children to lie on. We know that um, some of these toxins have been linked to cancers, primary mm -hmm. cancers in children, primary and secondary cancers in children and adults. So th this is a longer term initiative and one that we need to pay attention to. Absolutely. And I really think that people need to um, develop a voice about it. I think if it's demanded, I think as consumers, if we start demanding, we, we want to know what we're exposing our children to and ourselves to. And we want to know what's in these products that we're bringing in our homes, I think it's really, really important. And I think, you know, the Natural Resources Council of Maine is doing a lot in that end. Um, and there's many, many other organizations that are, are trying to bring that to the forefront. But I think, you know, if consumers demand it, it'll happen. It's just a lot more of the home furnishings are being brought back to being manufactured here in the United States because consumers are demanding it. We don't want the stuff that's being created over here from overseas. Um, so I think if it's it's a matter of if people know that there's some nasty stuff in in our home furnishings, and start asking, you know, contact your your legislators or counselors or whatever, just have a voice and and educate yourselves. Well, honestly, in the name of compassion for whomever might be creating furniture that has formaldehyde in it, even in other parts of the world. Mm. I mean, it's not any better for people who are working in those no. factories than no, it once was not. for people who are creating that same sort of furniture here. No, it's not. And in fact, I had a conversation with a sales rep um, not long ago who used to rep a line of case goods, which is wood products. And he went to the factory in Vietnam where they were being manufactured. And he said they were spraying the finishes on these tables and and whatnot, um, in with no masks, no nothing to help them breathe, in an open, big open space, and the factory had little, almost like a ditch, running down aisles where the the overspray would go into those ditches, run out into the streets and into the rivers, and so that's the other thing is is when people are buying products, ask where they're made because you know that that's that's just it may be overseas, it may be that far away from us, but eventually it's it's one big ocean and, and it will impact us. Jan, for people who are interested in finding out more about EcoHome, where can they find you? They can find me online. My uh, website is ecohomestudio.com and they can call me, uh, stop in 334 Forest Avenue in Portland in the old Pier 1 building, for those of us who've been here for a while. <laughs> and I remember Pier 1. I'm mm -hmm. glad to know that you've taken over that space because <laughs> I, I enjoyed that store, and I'm sure that you're you're filling it appropriately. And I hear that all the time. People say, oh, I miss the old Pier 1. So, yeah, it's, it's a good space to be in. Any final thoughts? Um... I guess I would just ask people, please ask where your product, what you're buying, where it's, where it's made and how it's made. Just just ask. Ask that question. If the salesperson doesn't know the answer, don't buy it. Don't bring it in your home. We've been speaking with Jan Robinson from EcoHome Studio. I really appreciate all the um, thoughtfulness that you have put into the work that you're doing. And Thank um, you. I appreciate the time you've taken to come in and speak with us today. Great. Thanks so much. Love Maine Radio is brought to you by Mac Page. 
an accounting and management consulting firm that believes the path to success is paved by their ability to build lasting, meaningful relationships with their clients. MacPage, accessible, approachable, and accountable. For more information, go to macpage.com. You've been listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 218, Indoor Ecosystems at Home and at School. Our guests have included Jenny Rowe and Jan Robinson. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Love, Maine Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love, Maine Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa and see my running, travel, food, and wellness photos as Bountiful One on Instagram. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love, Maine Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love, Maine Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belayo. I hope that you have enjoyed our Indoor Ecosystems at Home and at School show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. Love, Maine Radio is made possible with the support of Maine Magazine, Berlin City Honda, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room, Mac Page, Mary Libby of Remax by the Bay, and Apothecary by Design. Audio production and original music have been provided by Spencer Alby. Our editorial producer is Kelly Chase. Our assistant producer is Emily Davis. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Susan Grisanti, and Dr. Lisa Bellisle. For more information on our host's production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, visit us at lovemainradio.com. We leave you with music from Spencer Albee and Jaw Gems. Thanks.